Matthew 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Aaron, you can come on up. Let's pray together, Cars. Dear God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you alone are good, that you alone can provide the rest that we need. God, I ask that you would um, just bless this time, that we would learn the things that your word would teach us, that you would use Aaron as your vessel to do that. Um, God, thank you for his preparation. I ask that you would just be with him and give him the words to speak today and give our hearts um, just the posture that we need to learn to be humble before your word. We ask that you would do your work by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, good morning, church. So good to see you all today. Now, more than ever, it seems like the balance between work and rest is something that sits in the front of our minds constantly. Uh, The culture we live in is hyper-competitive. Everyone is constantly working, bragging about their long work weeks, getting a startup off the ground, or trying to find some other side hustle. And simultaneously, our culture is also extremely leisure-oriented. We go on social media, we see, everyone, uh, we see everyone else's cute hobby, we see the views from their most recent vacation, uh, we see the pictures of their experience at the homecoming parade. But maybe for you, this idea of balancing work and rest just doesn't fit with your life experience. I get that. More likely, you feel like you have to go all in in one of those areas, work or rest. And then no matter what you do, or when you do that, it becomes almost impossible to switch between one or the other. You're so work-obsessed that it becomes impossible for you to rest. And it's actually, ironically, only when your schedule is full and your to-do list is long that you feel like things are normal or have a little bit of control over the chaos of life. Alternatively, you're so rest-obsessed 
that you find new ways to fill your time with leisure, and it's like a job for you. Planning the next vacation, researching all the activities and the new hobbies you could pick up, making sure that the lighting is just right so everyone can see how beautiful the spot is for your picture. And the sad irony is that we're so obsessed with our work and our rest that we so often are unable to fully and properly experience either. I can't believe that it's already been five months since my son James was born. In some ways, it feels like it's been no time at all. In other ways, it feels like, like I can't even remember the before time. Uh, I also can't believe it's taken me five months to use a parenting thing in a sermon illustration. But here we are. As soon as he was born, my wife Caitlin and I, we entered this season of constant work with very little rest. One day, it's just the two of us having lunch at Sophia's. The next day, we've got a tiny human who is completely and fully dependent on us for everything. And it's kind of crazy what I noticed, like how quickly humans can adapt to like these maladaptive situations. Those initial days of getting up every couple hours in the night, like getting no rest, it turned me into just a complete zombie. But after the first week or two, you know, I'm it was like a high-functioning zombie, uh, thinking like, well, I guess I just live like this now. That's okay. And then the first time he slept through the night, all the way through, like, I woke up kind of stunned, like, oh, gosh, like, I didn't, I didn't wake up with him. He, it, we left him in the crib all night crying or whatever, like, well, I didn't wake up. And then I turn over and I look at the baby monitor, and it's like, he's perfectly fine, sleeping. And I start to think, like, wow, a full night's sleep, this I feel so rested right now. I thought I was handling the last few months well, but I can tell that I'm a completely different person now. This relationship between work and rest is going to be the focal point in our message this morning, our passage today in Matthew. As we read through it, we'll see Jesus' disciples, they get accosted by a group of Pharisees alleging that they are breaking the law by working on the Sabbath. So Jesus will have some important things to show us and share with us uh, on that subject. This morning we'll see together that our Lord of the Sabbath will be the one to guide us into true Sabbath rest, and then surprisingly, true Sabbath work, whatever that means. So let's go ahead and dive into our passage today. Let's start by examining the source of our conflict in these first verses. We read, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Okay. I know I do this fairly often, but I want us to try and empathize with the Pharisees before we get into our passage uh, and before we see Jesus correct them. Why should we do this? Because left to our own devices, we would probably become Pharisees ourselves. And I say, when I say we, I mean people in general, but I also mean like evangelical Christians specifically. Why? Because it's the Pharisees. The Pharisees are a, a Jewish sect that put a really high importance on God's word and a really high importance on faithful obedience to God's word. Does that sound like anyone you know? They cared about obeying God's word so much that and here's where they get into trouble. Number one, they would create a bunch of extra rules so that they wouldn't even get close to breaking God's instructions. 
And then number two, they treated their own rules as if they were God's instructions and expected everyone else to treat them the same. Sound like anyone you know? Hopefully not, but that may be reminiscent of a more fundamentalist church culture that you've experienced. And on our most legalistic days, honestly, that's us too. So let's show the Pharisees just a little bit of compassion as we start off into this passage. We see here the Pharisees, they're really, really concerned with Jesus' disciples plucking heads of grain and eating them on the Sabbath. So what is the significance of the Sabbath? And why do the Pharisees get so worked up over it? Well, the Sabbath day is a special day for the Jewish people, something that like, made their culture totally and completely unique compared to basically everyone else in, the, in their ancient world. The word Sabbath, it simply means rest. Every Saturday, the seventh day of the week, all the people and all the animals who lived in the land of Israel were supposed to rest completely from their work. It was to commemorate when God spent that very first Saturday resting from his work of creation. So in Genesis, we read this. It says, you know, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. No other culture had anything like this. The ancient world was a world where people lived hand to mouth. That is, you only ever ate what you were able to produce. So to other cultures, a day off from working meant a day off from eating. The Roman world around the Jewish people of Jesus' day, really, they looked down on the Jewish people because they thought, So lazy. They take a day off? What are they doing? (coughs) But what the Sabbath communicated to both the people of Israel and to their neighbors was that they were able to trust God to provide what they needed to make it through that day. That they were not always able to produce what they needed on their own, but could rely on God. This special day of rest, it was codified into uh, the, the covenant agreement that God makes with this people. In the book of Exodus, uh, command number four out of ten says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, The Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. But see, there weren't just Sabbath days. There were also Sabbath years. Every seven years, the people were supposed to give the land itself a year to rest. No farming, no agriculture for a whole year. They had to trust, this was the promise, that God would give them enough in that sixth year to see them through the seventh year. And if that's not radical enough for you, they also had these super Sabbaths, super Sabbath years. Because every seven Sabbath years, 49 years, the next year on that 50th year, they would have a super Sabbath, what they called a a year of jubilee or the year of the Lord's favor. And during this special year, all debts were canceled, all slaves were set free. And all the land that had been bought and sold over the previous years was returned to its family of origin. The super Sabbath, this was a generational 
reset button. It probably sounds mind-boggling to us that something like that would be expected. Uh, But God was serious about it. In the book of Leviticus, we're just working our way through the Torah this morning. In the book of Leviticus, we read about the details of the Sabbath days and years and God's blessing for keeping the Sabbath. He says, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commands and do them, then I will give you and your rain, I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last until the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last until the time for sowing. They're always going to have enough food. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land and the sword shall not go through your land. And then on the other hand, there were serious warnings about repeatedly breaking the Sabbath. Later in the same chapter, God says, and I myself, this is if um, they continue to, to violate God's law, I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheath the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths, as long as it lies desolate, while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths, as long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. Now, sadly, there's no, there's no evidence that the people of Israel ever actually followed these Sabbath laws. And if you've read through the end of your Old Testament, then you know that the people were punished by God and taken away into exile for a period of time. So the Pharisees, back to our passage this morning, the Pharisees, they look back into their Bibles. They see the results of the previous generation's sin, and they resolve never to let that happen again. So to assist them and their people, like we mentioned earlier, they build this fence around God's instructions. Their own rules that they make everyone else follow, so that they don't even get close to violating God's instructions. So when it came to keeping the Sabbath rules, the Pharisees invented what they called the 39 categories of work. This long list of things. 39 things that they forbid people from doing because they thought that those tasks would be considered working on the Sabbath. If you look at all the rules, they kind of fall into four different buckets. You have works related to making food, works related to making clothes, works related to processing animals, and works related to building houses. And so with the simple act of plucking a grain from the stalk, removing the kernel from the husk and eating it, the disciples are actually breaking like six of the Pharisees' rules. And they freak out to Jesus, dude, get your guys under control. They're breaking the Sabbath. And so Jesus responds in verses 3 through 8. He says, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. ( 
before I was in ministry, I used to wait tables, mostly at Buffalo Wild Wings. And I know the, the service industry, it's not, it's not for everyone, uh, but on the whole, I really loved working and waiting tables. I thought it was a fantastic job most of the time. And there was a season where I had a kitchen manager that I really didn't get along with very well. I didn't, it didn't seem like he liked me, and I didn't like him. And when I went in for a shift, I'd look at the you know, marker board, and I'd be like, oh, if his name was on there as like the shift leader, man, okay, if I can just get through tonight with interacting with this guy as little as possible, I can make it. And there was, but there was this one day where that kind of changed. I was, went to serve this table of ladies, and just right from the jump, I could tell that one of them was having a really rotten day. And she wanted to make sure that I was going to have a really rotten day. And so I'm trying to be as nice as I can, and, you know, she's ordering, and I read the order back to, you know, okay, ultimate nachos, everything on there okay? I don't want any jalapenos. Got it, no jalapenos. Does that mean you want the pico de gallo on the side? Because there's diced up jalapenos in our pico. No, that's fine, you can leave it on there. Okay, cool, we'll have that out in just a bit. So later on, set the nachos down, let them start eating. Circle back for that, you know, two-minute, two-bite check-in. Okay, ladies, how is everything? How are we doing over here? And I can tell this woman is just not having a good time at all. And she's been picking through her nachos since the second I put them down. I said, no jalapenos. How hard is it to leave the jalapenos off? I'm confused. I'm like, man, there's no jalapeno slices on your nachos. Oh, oh yeah? Well, what about these? And she starts pointing to the, the small diced up jalapenos in the pico de gallo. I said, yeah, there are diced jalapenos in the pico, but you said it was fine to leave it on there. And she looks at me like dead in the eye and goes, there's not jalapenos in the pico de gallo. And like to this day, I'm just like still kind of stunned by her audacity. Like, <laughs> I know the menu. That's why I asked if you wanted the pico on the side. And so we go back and forth for a minute about how the Pico does or doesn't have jalapenos, and eventually she, like, throws down the trump card. I want to speak to your manager. Okay. Ugh. hate when that happens. Now, not only do I have to go get the manager, but I have to go get that manager. I walk back in the kitchen, like, hey, man, you know, uh, table 312 or whatever, like, this lady wants to talk to you about the Pico on her nachos. So he goes over there, and I'm like kind of off to the side, like listening to the conversation. And I listen to them have the very same conversation that I had with her. And uh, eventually, you know, she, you know, she asserts like, the pico does not have jalapenos in it. And he's like, I can tell he's getting like really sick of this. And he just looks her dead in the eyes and goes like, ma'am, I've been here for 14 hours today. I opened this, re- this is dinner time. I, I opened this restaurant this morning. I made that pico. And I put jalapenos in it. <laughs> and that, like, shut her up real quick. But so she goes back, you know, to me, like, well, your server is doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. I mean, he did not warn me about the pico, the jalapenos in the pico. And she starts talking about how rude and unhelpful that I had been. And my boss stops her, and I'm not, I don't say this to, like, pump myself up. Like, this is what he said, and it was shocking. He goes, Aaron is one of our best servers. I know there's, he knows that there's jalapenos in the pico. And I know he's not a rude server like that. And he was like, if you had known what this meant, there are jalapenos in the pico de gallo, you would not have condemned the guiltless. 
the kitchen manager is Lord of the Pico. And from that day on, I had a totally different relationship with this kitchen manager. I was actually kind of sad to see him like, get a promotion and have to move to another store. In our passage here, Jesus goes to bat for his disciples. Don't you love that, church? We have a king who is willing and able to defend us from unjust attacks and unfair criticism. He goes back to the Old Testament. He says, don't you remember David? Don't you remember the, the priests? The priests can work in the temple on the Sabbath, and it's not a problem because the temple takes priority over the Sabbath. And guess what? Something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than King David is here. If the priests get to do it in the temple and David is not condemned, we don't have a problem here. Let's keep reading. Because so, Jesus, uh, he doesn't just respond to the Pharisees, but in the rest of our passage, he actually seems to go out of his way to antagonize them a little bit. Let's keep reading. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and the man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more valuable is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. So as we look at our passage in its entirety, there are three truths that I want us to realize. Three greater than Sabbath realities. Here's what we see. Jesus is greater than the temple. Mercy is greater than sacrifice. And the goodness of God is greater than the traditions of men. As we unpack these truths, we'll see the real meaning of Sabbath rest and of Sabbath work. So number one, Jesus is greater than the temple. For Jesus to have said this to the Pharisees would have, at the least, just been totally shocking, and at worst, completely blasphemous. The temple, and specifically the most holy part of the temple, is where God's presence dwelt on earth. And it's like most super highly concentrated form. That's kind of a weird way of saying that. How could there be anything greater than that? The place where God lives. Jesus doesn't explicitly say that he is the greater thing than the temple, but I think when we zoom out, it seems pretty clear that that's what he's implying. Jesus is the temple, but better. Okay. My wife, Caitlin, she grew up in southwest Missouri, and I know a decent number of y'all here from southwest Missouri. And if you're not from southwest Missouri, you've probably gone down to southwest Missouri for a family weekend vacation at Branson. Now, there's a bunch of stuff to do down there. Attractions, events, shows. Um, the Simpsons famously described Branson as Las Vegas if it was run by Ned Flanders. And if you've been down there at all in the last 20 to 30, maybe even 40 years, then you've seen the billboards for the comedian Yakov Smirnov. You know this guy? Uh, Yakov, he immigrated to the United States in the late 70s from the Soviet Union so that he could uh, pursue a career in show business. Uh, and, and one of the jokes that's kind of most associated with his act are these, like, in Soviet Russia jokes. You, kinda, you know how they go. You know, something innocuous about American culture is reversed to make it sound like a menacing aspect of living under communism. 
he did like a famous commercial and you know it's like, in America you can always find a party but in Soviet Russia the party always finds you <laughs> yeah and that joke's probably been around since the late 70s this is going to sound weird but I want you to think of Jesus's ministry in a little bit of a similar way hang on Jesus was born within the bounds of the old covenant he was born uh under the law is what the book of Galatians tells us. But his life, death, and resurrection, they kick off a new covenant relationship between God and his global multi-ethnic family. The new covenant is similar to the old in many ways, but is also better in many ways. It's often filled with surprising reversals. So how is Jesus greater than the temple? In the old covenant, you go to the temple to worship. But in the new covenant, the temple comes to you because Jesus is the temple now. In the old covenant, you have to clean yourself up before you go worship in the temple. But in the new covenant, the temple cleans you up so that you can worship with him. In the old covenant, the priests would eat bread in the temple. In the new covenant, the temple comes to eat bread with you. Everything that the temple was designed to do, Jesus does better. He fulfills the purpose of the temple. This reality actually shows us, uh, allows us to experience real Sabbath rest. The temple is designed for a place of Sabbath, a place of rest. It was a sanctuary. It was where God's own presence rested, where it resided with his people. We can get so caught up in this pendulum swing between work and rest that we miss out on the beauty of both work and rest. And when it comes to spiritual rest, so often it just becomes another chore for us. And with the Pharisees, by adding all these rules to the Sabbath day, the Pharisees inadvertently create work for people to do on the Sabbath. But Jesus, being the better temple, comes to us where we're at, invites us to rest with him. This passage, it flows perfectly out of Pastor Jeff's passage last week about Jesus being gentle and lowly in heart and his yoke being easy. The Lord of the Sabbath is able and eager to bring rest, to bring sanctuary to where you are. Jesus is greater than the temple. Then number two, Jesus is greater, or mercy is greater than sacrifice. Does anyone have a favorite Bible verse? Growing up, going to evangelical summer camps, you know, that was always like one of the main icebreaker questions. Okay, go around the room. Everyone say your name, where you're from, and like, what's your life verse? Your life verse. And every kid would go around the room and tell you what their all-time favorite Bible verse was. And I would always like start to get real anxious because like, I don't have like a life verse. And I always pretend to think about it when it came to me like, hmm. Probably, you know, John 3.16. I mean, it's a classic for a reason. But Matthew, our gospel writer, he has a life verse. And it's Hosea 6.6. It goes like this. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. How do I know this is Matthew's life verse? Because this is the second time that he's quoted it in the last four chapters. And the other time was the story about how he himself was called to follow Jesus. Maybe it's because after all the, the taxes that Matthew had stolen from his neighbors, 
given to the empire that was crushing them. And then after spending so much time with Jesus, Matthew knew that he couldn't sacrifice his way to Jesus, sacrifice his way to God. Instead, he was wholly reliant on Jesus' mercy. Why is this verse and this greater than Sabbath reality important for us? For starters, it shapes the way that we understand and relate to God. I unpacked this Hosea reference a lot, in a lot more detail in that sermon from Matthew chapter 9. So if you uh, want to know even more, you know, go back and listen to that on the podcast. But I'll just say this for today. Um, our God is not the kind of God who needs things. He doesn't need anything. He didn't need to create. He, didn't need to, he doesn't need to do anything for eternity. He existed in perfect relationship in himself in joyous, loving relationship. The Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Father in the union of the Spirit. Completely self-sufficient. He didn't need the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. And God the Father is not the one who needed Jesus to die on the cross. But rather, we are the ones who, in, who are in need. We're the ones who needed it. The sacrifice was to cover our sin. It didn't fulfill a lack of any kind in God. It didn't uh, satisfy some kind of bloodlust that God has. Sacrifices are for us. That means this verse also informs us of another reality of Sabbath rest. God doesn't desire the meager sacrifices that we make that we think are going to appease him. Well, I gave up this, or I went out and did that. Church, no. God already loved you. And he already liked you. And so he became the sacrifice that we needed to fully and finally know and show his love. We don't have to keep up the work of trying to earn God's affection. Because he's already shown us how much he cares for us. The time for sacrifice and burnt offerings is over. Now it's the time for true rest in the mercy and the steadfast love and the knowledge of God. Jesus is greater than the temple and mercy is greater than sacrifice. Finally, our third greater than Sabbath reality. God's goodness is greater than our traditions. In the last several verses, Jesus uh, walks right into the Pharisees' own synagogue and they try and trap him with a question. Okay, Tell me this, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? You remember those 39 regulations that the Pharisees put together? Well, to their credit, they did have an exception, a life-saving clause. And Jesus knows about this. He responds, y'all have an exception uh, to the rules about working in order to save life, right? If your sheep is in danger, it's okay to rescue your sheep. And if it's the case for an animal, then how much more for a human being? And Jesus flips the script. Perhaps the Pharisees were expecting Jesus to say, yeah, you're right. It's not lawful to heal on the Sabbath, only to save life. Because there's a little nuanced difference there. This man in the synagogue with the withered hand, we don't get to learn anything else about his disability. Was he born with this condition? Was his hand permanently injured in some way? We don't know. We'll never know for sure. But it does seem like this disability is something that like, 
he would have made it through the day with. He wasn't on death's door due to his hand. And if the Pharisees are right that Jesus shouldn't heal on the Sabbath, they're like, just come back tomorrow. Heal him on Sunday. You can do anything you want on Sunday. But Jesus is not just about saving life. He's got even more in store. Because while the Sabbath is about rest, it's not just about rest. It's about relying on God to preserve you while you acknowledge that you don't have enough in and of yourself. It's also about restoration. Remember the super Sabbath, the year of the Lord's favor? It's about hitting that reset button, about everything returning to the way it ought to be. So Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, he reveals true Sabbath work to us when he restores this man's hand and tells us, it's not just okay to save a life on the Sabbath, you can do good on the Sabbath. You can live like you have open access to the Lord of the Sabbath all the time because you do, because we do. I like Mark's version of this story also because he adds a little extra line to Jesus' rebuke. He says, the Sabbath was not made for man. Man was, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Think about the creation story. Like, God spends six days creating. Day six, he creates humans. And then he takes a Sabbath. The first human's first day of existence was a day of rest. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God's goodness supersedes the traditions and the rules that we make up for ourselves. Jesus tells the Pharisees, if what you've made and added to God's word keeps you from helping others experience the true power and love of God, then you've gone too far. And in trying to keep Jesus from healing on the Sabbath, they have missed the whole point of the Sabbath. Church, where might we do this as a community or as individuals, outwardly or inwardly in our hearts? Broadly speaking, across um, you know, the general evangelical culture in America, I think we probably have a tendency to uh, idolize the nuclear family unit. The nuclear family unit is good. God ordains marriage, it's good. But I fear our churches can lean too heavily into that idea and tell us part of Christian maturity is getting married and having kids. And no one ever says the quiet part out loud, but we kind of act like that sometimes. But where does that leave our brothers and sisters who are students, single, young professionals, those who are unable to have kids, or those who are attracted to people of the same sex but committed to following the Bible's calling for marriage and sexuality, or who are widows or widowers? There are so many reasons that a person or persons might not fit into what we call a traditional family unit. But that's okay, because the call of Jesus is not into your own nuclear household family complete with 2.4 kids, a dog, and a white picket fence. Jesus' calling is into his family, the church, the family of God. Carson, I think that we actually do a pretty good job of creating a church culture like this, one that feels like family. But I want to get ahead of this. I want to warn us now because as I see the life cycle of our church 
changing in this season. We're not a church like when Karas was planted. We're not a church of mostly young millennials who are single, finishing school, starting their careers. We're a church of mostly, and this hurts to admit, older millennials who are getting married and having kids. And that's good. That's amazing and exciting. But it can be tempting. It can lead us into this idolatry of family that we have to push back against if we're going to be the family that Jesus has called us to be. Nothing wrong with getting married, having kids. Those are good gifts from God. Uh, But they're not ultimate. God hasn't made those things to be ultimate for us. Another way we can put our traditions over the goodness of God would be something like this. We're a church that we, we talk a lot about. We have expressed as part of our mission and vision. If you come to Car's intro, Kevin's going to tell you this again. We want to be a church that is full of gospel diversity. We want Cars to be a church for people of different ethnicities and different generations. Not for the sake of uh, being a, a big group of people who fit in this room, but because we think the Bible says that God's family is a multi-ethnic, multi-generational family and multi-a bunch of other stuff. I know a lot of you here share that heart and that vision. Now, at the same time, we have to be real about how to go about being a church that pursues gospel-centered diversity. And here's a big part of that. We have to understand that our traditions, our styles, our preferences are just that. They're not the gospel. And so we can't allow our favorite songs, our favorite instruments, our favorite coffee to become a barrier to being who God has called us to be. It means we have to think critically as a whole church, and especially for our church leaders, about how we do things and also who we have doing things. If we want to be a church that we think we're called to be, we have to, I have to, be willing to share the stage and the microphone with folks of different ages or races than me. We need to, I need to, make sure that we have women leading us in biblical ways, as we so often do in our gatherings, through music and prayer and other things. We need to make sure that we don't show favoritism in our church family towards those who are better off financially. Capacity to give is not the same thing as giftedness or calling to lead. But church, if we pursue this like we should, I'm going to warn you. You will probably personally enjoy our large gatherings a little bit less than you did in the past. We're going to sing songs that you don't particularly like, and we might sing them in a way that you've never heard before. On the occasions that we have a larger event and we provide food as a church, there might be something on the table that you've never tried, something that you think smells weird, or something that's way, way, way too spicy for you, and that's okay. Because our church isn't about my favorite things or your favorite things, our traditions and preferences. Kevin Grayler was telling me one time, telling us at our college group, um, like, our gatherings are a place where we can intentionally make ourselves uncomfortable so that other people can feel more comfortable. It's about incorporating all the people that God has in this city into this one family. Cars, there's one last verse in our passage this morning that we need to get to, and then we'll be done. Verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. 
Now, this might sound, this might seem like kind of a throwaway line, but it's weirdly specific, and it reveals the heart that's truly within the Pharisees. Remember again, those 39 regulations that they had put together. I said that one category was related to processing animals. Stay with me. According to the Pharisees, two actions that were violations of the Sabbath were trapping and killing an animal. Can't do that on the Sabbath. Yet, as they are rebuked by the Lord of the Sabbath, they slink away to conspire how to destroy the Messiah. They're willing to save a sheep on the Sabbath, condemn Jesus for bringing Sabbath restoration to a disabled man, and then go set a trap in order to kill the true Lamb of God. But Jesus knows this. Jesus is not caught off guard by this. He's not surprised by this. In fact, it's why Jesus, the creator and the king of the universe, became a human in the first place. To fulfill God's perfect law, including the Sabbath laws, to be captured and crucified. On that first Good Friday ever, Jesus was nailed to a cross. The Lamb of God sacrificed himself for my sins and your sins. And then he was buried. And that spotless lamb, he lay in a pit, a literal pit, a spiritual pit, all Saturday long. No working on that Sabbath day. Why? Because Jesus already said on Friday that the work was finished. And so he rested in the grave. But where you or I or the Pharisees would have failed to rescue God's lamb from the pit. God was faithful. Because on Sunday morning, the first day of the week, God raised Jesus from the dead to show us what full and complete Sabbath restoration looks like. And then to share that true Sabbath with his people. Carter's Church, that's the good news of Jesus. And he's the one who leads us into true Sabbath rest and into true Sabbath work. Let's pray. God, we honor you together this morning. We thank you for revealing yourself to us through Jesus and through your word. It's by these chapters and verses that um, your Holy Spirit works to transform us, to be like you. God, would you take these things, apply them to our hearts, apply them to our minds? Would you show us Jesus so that we can go out and truly rest in him? God, we have access to Sabbath rest, day or night, weekend, weeknight, through him. God, will we also not neglect the true and the good things that you've created us and are calling us to do? God, we don't want to be trapped by our traditions or our idols. We want to be faithful to you. Lord, as we continue to worship together this morning, would you give us unity around your table, a greater sense of unity with Jesus, our King, and a deeper fellowship with one another as brothers and sisters. God, we're thankful for all the good gifts that you've given to us and the greatest gift being your Son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.